You're listening to sermons from Redeemer Church in Round Rock, Texas. Redeemer is a gospel-centered, missional family learning and living the way of Jesus in the suburbs of Austin. Well, I want to invite you to meet me back in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you have your Bible, meet me back there. Our study in 1 Corinthians, we've been in a series in 1 Corinthians, and it has brought us into a topic today, into the issue today of sex and sexuality, as you see from Austin reading our text earlier. And I'm aware up front, by the way, that one sermon on this topic is not going to teach us everything that there is to know, to learn, or to unlearn. But I do think that today's message will be hopefully a good foundation for us. I hope it will be clarifying for us. It's important. Um, not only just as followers of Jesus, but it's important for our mission and our witness in the world. I also know, it's also not lost on me, that there are a variety of different emotions uh, when this topic comes up uh, in, a, in any room, but maybe especially in this room. There are many different emotions. There are some who probably are already embarrassed and blushing with me just telling you what the sermon's about today. That that's that's, a, that's an emotion that some of you might be feeling embarrassment. You might be blushing. And I would say to you, well, just wait. Uh, there's more. <laughs> there are others who, no doubt, when we start to talk about this, there is shame and guilt. There are some who uh, hate sex, who actually wish God never made it. And there's a lot of shame about it. Um, it hasn't gone well. Maybe it's hurt you. Maybe it's a struggle for you, even still. There's others that maybe love it too much. And it's been enslaving, even addicting in your life. And so there's shame and guilt. And I think there's also probably others who are maybe eager today, eager to actually hear what the Bible has to say about this. It is a real part of our life. And so maybe you've never been taught. Maybe you are a new Christian and you're eager to be discipled. You've experienced the way of the world. And you're like, what is the way of Jesus as it relates to sexuality? If if that's you, I'm glad that you're here. And because the Bible actually does have a lot to say. It does have a lot to say. It has a lot to help us. And so, regardless of wherever you are and however you feel, I trust that God's word will do what it always does and that it will be good and true and clarifying for us today. As we begin, I want to pull us back into the text with the question of the text. And this is really what's at the heart of Paul's writing. It's a question. It's the question of what are we to do with our sexual desires in light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? That's really the question of the text. What do we do in light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? When we get into chapter 7 next week, that there's going to be more of a specific question from the Corinthians about this. Well, what are we supposed to do? Should we get married? Should we not get married? What are we supposed to do in light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? And the reason that Paul is addressing this is because Corinth, this city in the ancient world, was a sex-obsessed city. It was a booming city. It was a city that had been rebuilt. The Romans destroyed Corinth, and then it was rebuilt. And about 100 years into its rebuild, it was a booming city. It was a coastal city. It was a city where a lot of people were passing through with trade. It was a city where a lot of young people would move to kind of uh, find themselves and get busy in their career and perhaps even in some other ways. It was a city of um, Aphrodite's temple, Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of 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 love and pleasure. It was a city of her temple that employed thousands of prostitutes. It was a sex-obsessed city. You couldn't avoid it if you lived in Corinth. You could hardly avoid its allure, its temptation, 
its pool. You couldn't avoid explaining it to your children. It was everywhere. You had to kind of find a way to explain what it is to your children. Does this sound familiar? It's everywhere. It's in our movies. It's in our shows. It's everywhere. It's hard to avoid its allure. It's confusing. It's hard to not explain to our children. We should, because if we don't, then the culture will disciple them and will teach them what they ought to think rather than the Bible. And there were two schools of thought in Corinth that were going on. The first was the majority school of thought, and it was this, that sex, sex is casual. It's casual, and so don't make too big, big of a deal. It's natural. Just get busy. That was the primary school of thought. The second, which was the minority school of thought, but there were some that were enlightened in Corinth that said, no, no, actually, it's not. It's not free. It's not casual. It's actually bad. It's of the material, and we ought to shed everything of the material and just be of the spiritual. These were kind of the two ways of thought among the enlightened in Corinth. And so Paul is writing to this young church to help them sort through all of the confusion in their day in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In light of our faith that we profess, how should we then live? Are we free to do whatever we want? Right? Paul would actually talk about this in his letter in the Galatians. He talks about how we're free. And so some of the young Christians in Corinth are thinking, well, are we free to do whatever we want then? Jesus forgives us and loves us and we're secure in him. Maybe we're free. Or is it bad? Should we abstain from it and shed it? And so Paul writes. And ultimately, verse 18, you can look there. Paul says this. He says, flee sexual immorality. You can underline that if you have a Bible open. Flee sexual immorality. It's the idea he's saying here of run from or shun, put off any view of sexuality that does not align with God's good design for men and women. The term sexual immorality is the Bible's shorthand for any sexuality that's outside of God's design for men and women in marriage. And Paul says, flee it, run from it. Don't be duped by it. Don't be damaged by it. Align yourself with God's good design. In other words, Paul is going to argue in this text that the Christian view of sexuality is the only way, the only way to flourishing and freedom with our bodies. I want to say that again. This is what he's going to argue. The Christian view of sexuality is the only true way of flourishing and freedom with our bodies. Let's look back at the text, verse 12, and, uh, starting in verse 12. Paul is quoting here uh, the, the thought of the day in Corinth. He says, all things are lawful for me, he quotes, but are all things helpful, he says. All things are lawful, but, but are they helpful? You can underline that word helpful. Are, are, they, are they good? Are, are they beneficial? Does it cause you to flourish? It's really what he's getting at. All things are lawful. Maybe it's within bounds, or you say it is, but is it really for your good? All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything, Paul says. Are you really free? That's what he's saying. It might be lawful for you, but are you enslaved? Are you really free? You see, what Paul is doing is he's interacting with some of the thinking of his day around sexual expression. And surprisingly, the thinking of the day in Corinth is not so much different from the thinking in our day. In other words, progressives' ideas about sexuality are really not that progressive, actually. They've been tried. It's been tried. The ancient peoples, <laughs> this is the way that they, they tried to express uh, their, their, their bodies and their sexualities pursuing freedom. Paul says, all things are lawful. 
This was the go-to mantra for the Corinthian freethinkers to justify things like adultery, which was common. Homosexual activity, which was common. And most importantly, prostitution, even in public, which was normal. I'm free to express my desires as long as I'm not hurting anyone, as long as I'm not breaking any laws. It's not that much different than the way a lot of people, free thinkers, try to think about sexuality today. Um, especially, Paul is referencing here, prostitution. Prostitution was common. It was as accessible in Corinth, as common in Corinth as perhaps pornography is in our culture today, as common, as acceptable, as normalized. And, and Paul is, is really calling that into question here. He's saying, is it good? Is it for your flourishing? Are you really free? Is it really what it promises? It was normal for men, especially in the ancient world, to visit a brothel after a long day of work. Um, and, and one commentator says this about what this produced in the ancient world. It produced a really low and sad view of marriage. Listen to what he says. He says, a man's wife was for bearing heirs, for securing strategic political and social alliances, but not so much for intimacy and sexual pleasure. What a low view of marriage. What a, what a low view of women that existed in the ancient world in this free-thinking all things are lawful kind of mentality. You see, in Corinth, prostitution was in vogue. Adultery was of no moral concern, and sexuality was everything. The Corinthians thought that they were enlightened, which, by the way, this is a perfect example of how the early Christians revolutionized the ancient world. In the 1960s in our country, people often talked about the beginning of the sexual revolution, which has continued even into today with uh, with even things like the LGBTQ plus movement, the sexual revolution, we're actually going to flee and be free from Christian thinking. Well, did you know that the Christians in the ancient world actually were the first ones to usher in a sexual revolution? They started to live by the teachings of the Bible. They started to value sex in light of its design. They started to honor marriages, specifically men. It called Christianity called men away from brothels and away from adultery and away from homosexual activity to faithfulness to their wives. The early Christians named the harm and the abuse that prostitution actually brought to women. The early Christians modeled a different way, a better way, a way of covenant faithfulness in marriage, sexual purity and singleness. And the beauty of the early church began to resonate in a bankrupt society. And it changed the world. It absolutely changed the world, the Christian sexual ethic preached in the ancient world. And this is exactly what Paul is doing, is what he's pointing to. He's saying, all things are lawful, but does it lead to flourishing? All things are, 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 are lawful, but does it lead to freedom, or are you enslaved? He's challenging Corinth's distorted views of sexuality. Then he argues another mantra. Look at, look at verse 13. This was another common saying in Corinth. Well, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, Paul quotes. In other words, it's just an appetite. Sexual desire, sex, is just an appetite. Like food for the stomach, so is sex for the body. Feed your appetite. And Paul is questioning this distorted view, this way of thinking. He says, is it though? Is it just an appetite? Is the body really that insignificant? Is sex just an itch to be scratched? Paul will go on in this text to say, no, that is such a distorted view of the human body. That's such a distorted view of sex. That's such a damaging path to walk. 
And I think this is a, this is a good time for us to perhaps pause and just to consider maybe the distorted views of sex and sexuality in our day today. This is where Paul begins. He's going to point to the better way, but first he starts by confronting the distorted views. And so what about for us? What about in our days? I want to give you three, three things that I, I bet in some way or another, all of us in this room have been impacted by one of these distorted views. And the first is this. It's that sex is dirty. It's dirty. Maybe you picked this up especially if you're a Christian who was raised in purity culture, where there was an overemphasis of teaching that your identity was in your purity. God's love for you is dependent upon your purity. And so you internalized that sexual desires and that sex in general is bad. It's dirty. And I want you to know that this is very unbiblical. If this is your view, there are parts and places in the Bible that will make you very uncomfortable. One of them is the passage that we'll look at next week. Uh, go read the Song of Solomon. Go read uh, Song of Solomon. Go read Proverbs chapter 5. There are parts of the Bible that will make you very uncomfortable. This is not the biblical view. Sex is not dirty. It is a glorious gift given by God for married people to enjoy, to cultivate their union. And so perhaps this view has tainted some of us that it's dirty, that we shouldn't think about it, we shouldn't talk about it, we should run from it. I know that there are many Christians that have struggled for years, even in marriage, to unlearn this view. And I want you to know if that's you, there's grace for you today. There's hope for you in what the Bible has to say. Second view. So the first view is that sex is dirty. Second view is that it's nothing. It's just nothing at all. It's no big deal. It's just a desire. It's just an appetite. Do what you want. Look at what you want. Click on what you want. It's just an appetite. It's not hurting anyone. And we'll talk about this more as we go. But deep down, I think we know that this is not true. Deep down, I think we know that this is absolutely foolish. There is nothing that scars the soul like sexual sin. Will you hear me? That's what Paul is going to say later. He's going to say, flee sexual immorality because unlike other sins, it's a sin against your body, which is made in the image of God and is the temple of God. Nothing scars the soul like sexual sin. It's also a view that's selfish. It's a view that's about self. Sex then is just a means to have your needs met, which means that the other person is not someone to be loved or to be cared for or to be considered, but someone to be used. It's selfish. God forbid, it's even abusive. And so please hear me. Nothing will destroy you. Nothing will derail your life faster than thinking that sexual sin is casual, that it's nothing. And then finally, I think there's a third view that's probably the most prominent in our day today, and it's that sex is everything. It's everything. It's become an idol. It's the way of thinking that our sexual desires must be explored and expressed. Like it has to be. In fact, our sexual desires are who we are. It's our identity. And this is such a lie. I don't think I need to spend much time here convincing you that this is neither true nor good. If you give yourself completely to any desire, if you try and find your identity in any desire, especially a distorted desire, we all know that that is a dead end road. If your desire is to gamble... Are you going to express that desire all the way, chase it all the way to its end? How will that go? 
You see, the Bible teaches us that while sex is a glorious gift, it is not everything, and it's certainly not our identity. It's certainly not our key to happiness. Identity comes from God, and sex can be lived without just fine, the Bible will tell us, by singles, by widows, by celibates. It's not everything. It's a glorious gift, but not everything. And so this is where Paul begins, exposing distorted views about sex in order to show us a better way, a way to true freedom and true flourishing. Look, look at what he says at the end of verse 13. He goes on. He says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the member of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one flesh with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. A few things here. This is loaded, by the way. This is like somebody gives you this, te- this little snippet of text here. It's like somebody giving you an HEB gift card that is just like preloaded with thousands of dollars. <laughs> like we could mine these verses. Paul is, he's doing some significant theologizing here. But let me just give you a couple of things. Number one, here's what he's saying. First, he points out an essential, historic Christian belief that separates Christianity from any other philosophy, any other religion, any other way of thinking, and it's that our bodies matter. Your body is significant. Therefore, what you do with your body is significant. He says your bodies were designed by God. You were made not for sexual immorality. Your bodies are not just a shell to uh, to live out your impulses. Your body was made for God. And and he says you were designed by God. You were made in his image. He bestowed upon every body dignity and honor and glory. He's saying your bodies matter to God. Therefore, what we do with our bodies matters. He says, it's not made for sexual immorality. It's made for the Lord. It's made to glorify God. It's made to find all of your joy, to have all of your desires met in your creator. Everything else, when rightly understood and rightly received, is meant to enhance the joy and the abundance and the life and the union and the communion that we have with God, our creator. Everything else. But because of the fall, there are distortions to our desires. I mean, think about some other desire. Let's fill in the blank. A desire for comfort. You were created by God to live in a body, to have all of your needs met by God, your creator. But what happens when that desire for comfort gets distorted? What do we do? We run to all sorts of things, don't we? We do what Paul says in Romans chapter one. We stop worshiping the creator and we worship the creation. Job, comfort, possessions, a new house, a better house an even better house, a new car, then I will be satisfied. It's a distorted desire. What what, what about a desire for for glory? We were created by God to uh, put in glorious bodies to enjoy the glory of God. What happens when a desire for glory gets distorted? We want power and we want fame and we can run to all sorts of places to find it, can't we? Even to violence, corruption, greed, It's a distorted desire, a God-given desire 
That's a distorted desire. And Paul is saying the same thing here about sexuality. It's God-given, but it only works when it's God-governed. That's what he's saying. It's meant to point you to your Savior and to your, to your Lord. The body was made for the Lord and the Lord for the body. It's not made for sexual immorality. And then Paul begins to specifically talk to Christians. Look at what he says about your body to Christians. He says, your body will be raised in glory in the future. Your body matters to God. You will be raised up. You're not just going to be some disembodied soul. You're going to be raised up with Jesus. Your body is significant. Your body matters to God. He says, your body, even now in the present, is united to Christ by the Spirit. Paul says in Colossians chapter 3 that we are in him and he is in us. Do you see the picture here of united with Christ? This is the point. This is the point that he's making. I told you it's loaded. He's theologizing sex and sexual desires and how it was meant to point us to have our souls satisfied fully and completely in God through Jesus Christ. And this is where he points us back to God's good design. Ultimately, what Paul is saying here is he's saying, remember that the God-given design for sex and sexuality was to be a uniting act. He says, you're united with Christ. It was meant to be a uniting act. Body and soul united. Two becoming one flesh, united. And he references and he points back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 24 through 25, in order to help us get the point and get the picture of sexuality. Genesis chapter 2 says this, verse 24 and 25, Therefore man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. It's a uniting act. Verse 24, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. He's talking about the birds and the bees. That's what he's talking about. It was a uniting act, body and soul of man and woman, physically, bodies fitting together. It's a uniting act spiritually and emotionally. This is God's design, a uniting act of men and women who, whose lives have been joined together before God in marriage. What is God's design for sex and sexuality? This is it, marriage. This is his intent. It's his good gift, not only to grow families, but also to cultivate vulnerability in marriage, to cultivate knowing and being known and committed love, to cultivate oneness and self-giving in marriage. There's no other view of sex and sexuality that is true. This is the one true view that leads to flourishing. Everything else, every other view is a distortion of God-given desires. Do you hear me? It's a distortion, and in the end, is damaging. Listen to what Tim Keller says about God's design of sex as a uniting act in marriage. He says, sex is perhaps the most powerful God-created way to help you give your entire self to another human being. It's God's appointed way for two people to reciprocally say to one another, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you. He says, you must not use sex to say anything less. According to the Bible, a covenant is necessary for sex. It creates a place for security, for vulnerability, and intimacy. But, through a marriage, but though a marriage covenant is necessary for sex, sex is also necessary for the maintenance of the covenant. It's your covenant renewal service, Keller says. And it's true, isn't it? 
the whole concept of makeup sex. It's biblical. It's real. It's a covenant renewal service. It brings us together. In other words, it's designed by God for men and women in marriage, two individual people who are trying to learn to become one flesh. It's, a, it's relational glue when submitted to, to Jesus. It's a powerful act. It literally, what, what, Paul, what, what, God, what God is saying here in, in Genesis chapter 2, it's literally saying it's a, it's a uniting act. It's a means of self-donation, one to another. That's what he's saying, self-donation. I give myself to you, you give yourself to me physically. I give myself to you, you give yourself to me emotionally. I give myself to you, you give yourself to me spiritually, committed, oneness, vulnerability, self-serving uh, uh, the other, not serving the self. This is God's good design. And anything outside of this design is not only distorted, but it's broken and it breaks us. You see, the biblical picture of sex is like a, like, think, think of like a river. Rivers are beautiful and they're powerful when they stay inside their banks. What happens when it gets outside of its banks? When a river overfloods its banks, it, right, all of a sudden it gets dangerous. It's damaging. It's not what it was meant to be. One author put, put, the, put it this way. He says, sex is a lot like this. We need to keep it inside its banks so it can be what it was meant to be so that we don't get hurt. He says this. He says, listen to this. He says, nobody can go to bed with someone and leave the soul parked outside. It's a uniting act. Physically, spiritually, emotionally. Nobody can leave the soul parked outside. He said, afterwards, the two people seldom never feel the same way toward each other again. They may love each other as never before. They may resent each other as never before, but the relationship will never be the same that it was before sex. Why? Why is that true? We know that's true. Why is that true? Because by God, it's relational glue. It's made for married people to be relational glue. Outside of marriage, it's quicksand. It's dangerous. It's damaging. I want you to hear me. The Christian teaching on sex is beautiful. It's beautiful. It is not dirty. It is a good gift that God has given. It's not casual. It's not just an appetite. It's beautiful. It's a God-given means to unite souls and keep souls united in committed marriage. It's a God-given tool hear me, to teach us about the vulnerability of our Savior, about the self-giving love of our God, about the committed, long-term, uniting love of our Father by His Spirit within us. It is powerful. It is glorious. It is beautiful. Is it everything? Is it everything? No, of course it's not. Can you live without it? Of course you can. Are there other ways of joy? Are there other gifts that God gives to single and unmarried people? Absolutely. If it's a river, then there are lakes and mountains. And Paul will talk about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, that God gives to single and unmarried people. It's not everything. So if this is God's view, if this is the intent, if this is why it was given, what do we do? What do we do with this today? What do, what do we do as single and married people living in 2023? Well, here's what Paul says. In light of God's view, we ought to do everything that we can to align ourselves so that we might experience freedom and flourishing. Look, at, look back at chapter uh, at 6, verses 18 through 20. 
Paul's going to go on in chapter 7, and he's going to say that married people ought to enjoy the gift. So in, in verse 18, he's going to say, flee sexual immorality. In chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, he's going to say, married people ought to enjoy the gift. He's going to say, enjoy, he's going to say go whitewater rafting. That's what he's going to say. Enjoy the gift. And, and do it often, actually, regularly. Like, enjoy the gift. And, 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 and here's the thing. If you're not very good at it, if you're not very good at whitewater rafting, he's going to say, just keep, just keep going. Just keep trying. And actually invite God into it. Pray and invite God into it. Say, God, I want this to be about you. I want this to be worshiping to you. I want this to be what you made it to be, relational glory that grows my love for the other and ultimately my love for you. Invite him into it. That's what he's going to say in chapter 7, verse 1 through 5. But here's what he's going to say to all of us, whether we're married or single. Verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. Simple, isn't it? Flee. Run from it. Don't be duped by any other view. Don't, don't be duped. He's going to go on. He's going to say, every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. It is damaging. He's going to say, flee it. Don't be duped by distorted views. Don't think it's casual and it won't ever catch up to you because it will. That's like yawning in the face of a tiger. It will destroy. Listen, as a pastor, I've seen it too many times where people do not take seriously the dangers of sexual sin, whether we're single people or married people. We don't take it seriously, and it destroys and it devours like a river outside of its banks. He says, flee it. Look at what he says in verse 19. I love this. Do you not know? Remember that from last week? Do you not know? Have you forgotten the good news of Jesus Christ for you and your body? Is what he's saying. Have you forgotten what you were saved from and what you were saved for, Christian? Have you forgotten, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Have you forgotten that you're not your own, but you were bought with the price, with the precious blood of Jesus Christ? You were redeemed and set free from the effects of the fall, all the distortions of our desires. You've been actually, you're being remade in Jesus Christ to love him and live for him with a pure heart. The Holy Spirit is within you to help you. So glorify God with your body. Have you forgotten how much he loved you? What he's done for you to forgive you and to cleanse you and to redeem you? Listen, sexual sin is sin. Anything outside of God's design, using it even in marriage as God intended it is sin. But hear me, sexual sin is not unforgivable sin. It's more damaging than a lot of other sins, but it is certainly not unforgivable. He says, do you not know? You've been bought with the price. You've been cleaned, cleansed. You've been, you've been saved. You've been redeemed. And so glorify God with your bodies. In other words, here's what he's saying. He's saying, Christian, in a sexually obsessed society, in a sexually confused world, see the good news of Jesus for you and your bodies and live the better way. That's what he's saying. Flee sexual immorality. Live the better way. You were bought with the price. Glorify God with your bodies. What if every time we found ourselves despairing? What if every time we found ourselves tempted? What if every time we found ourselves in shame and guilt, we said, I've been bought with the price. I'm not my own. We stared the temptation right in the face. My body is the temple of the Holy Spirit of a God who so loved me and poured himself into me. I'm going to glorify God with my body. You see what he's saying? He's saying, remember the gospel, live the better way. This is the call, to view our bodies, 
the way God views them, to view sex the way he intended it, to look to Jesus for grace when we failed and when we fail, and to glorify him with all that we are and all that we have, including our sexuality, to live the better way. And hear me as we close. In a society that is sexually confused and broken and bankrupt, in a society that since the 1960s has been trying to flee the Christian teaching and find a better way, more than ever does our city, does our family, does our community, do our neighbors need the church as single and married people living the better way. People that were bought with a price that were not their own, glorifying God with their bodies. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for your word. We give thanks to you now that there is not one square inch of our life that the good news of Jesus does not shine upon. There's not one square inch of our brokenness that the grace and mercy and redeeming love of Christ does not cleanse and renew. And I just simply pray, Father, that we would hear your word today and that wherever we are, single people, married people, students, wherever we are, we would hear your word today and we would believe it's good news. We would see you, the risen Lord Jesus Christ, for who you are, the way, the truth, and the life. We would believe that in every area of our life, in all of our desires, that you call us to flourishing and freedom. Holy Spirit, would you help us to be a church that submits our sexuality to you, that lives as married people who enjoy the gift and glorify you with our bodies as single people, content in Christ, receiving the other gifts that you give, glorifying you with our bodies. We thank you that sex is not dirty, that it is not casual, and we thank you that it's not everything, that you are. You are all in all. We pray that as we enter into a time of response that you would move in our midst, that you would encourage us, that you would meet us with the grace that we need in this moment. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you are looking for info, find our website at RedeemerRR.org or download the Redeemer Round Rock app from the Android or iOS app store.